0: Uh, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace and at the same time you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace Uh, and what that means is we believe fundamentally that God's kindness is the thing that makes us Christians Um, but also if you're here and you've been a Christian for a long time the thing that keeps us Christians is also God's kindness Uh, it's not as if we're somehow saved by grace and then we kind of stay in by works the whole thing is grace from start to finish that's what RUF is all about uh, and this semester in RUF, we've been looking at Jesus' most famous sermon, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So we're three weeks into our series, uh, but in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing is he's giving his vision of what it means to live the good life, what it means to live the good life. Um, and so the world often feels far from good. So what does it mean to follow Jesus in this world? That's what Jesus is talking about. So I'm going to go ahead and read our passage for us, Pray. And then we can get started so we're going to be in matthew five thirteen through 16. Uh, this is god's word you are the salt of the earth but if salt has lost its taste how shall its saltiness be restored it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet you are the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I want to pray for us and we can get started. Father, we do thank you uh, for this, your word. Um, Lord, these words might be familiar for some of us. Uh, We might have heard things like salt of the earth and um, might have heard people being referred to as lights in the world. Um, But for many of us, we just don't really have any idea what that means and uh, what if any relevance that has for our lives and so lord i pray that you would open our eyes uh, and help us to see uh, the beauty of these words um, help us to see uh, jesus clearly uh, and to be transformed by that all these things i ask in jesus name amen Um, so i was kind of shaped by a couple movies growing up uh, but one of them that is like kind of primary for me uh, the year was 2001. The movie is Zoolander. Uh, how many of y'all have seen Zoolander? Okay, it's a decent amount. It's more than I thought. So if you haven't seen Zoolander, uh, it tells the story of a aging male model named Derek Zoolander, played by Ben Stiller. Uh, and kind of the, at the beginning of the story, Ben Stiller, Derek Zoolander, uh, is up for Male Model of the Year, which he has won again and again and again, but he doesn't win it. He's upstaged by this uh, young, cool, hip mo- male model named Hansel, uh, who is played by Owen Wilson. And this puts uh, Derek Zoolander kind of into a downward spiral, uh, and he has a bit of an existential crisis. Uh, so he wakes up the next morning after losing male model of the year, and he's talking to his other model roommates. And he just looks at them and says, asks this question, Did you ever think that there's more to life than being really, really ridiculously good looking, (laughs) right? Did you ever think there might be more than this? Uh, This question that Derek Zoolander asked I think is a relatable question for us. And you might be thinking, what do you mean by that? Uh, It's not relatable because we're all male models. I don't know of any male (laughs) models in here. Um, I think it's relatable because it's a question of purpose. It's a question of purpose. Uh, You may never have asked uh, if there's more to life than being really, really ridiculously good looking, but I would be willing to bet within the last year, you've asked the question, what am I doing with my life? Or having uh, gotten to something that you were really looking forward to, you've asked the question, is this it? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? And if you haven't asked those questions yet, college is kind of the time where that, that hits a lot of us for the first time. I know that's part of my story. You see, in our passage tonight, Jesus meets us kind of at this point of questioning our purpose in the world. Jesus meets us kind of at this point of having a bit of an existential crisis. So last week, if you were here with us, we considered the type of person that Jesus considers successful. We looked at what are called the Beatitudes, where Jesus just kind of gives a vision of what this is, what a successful person in the world looks like. It's a person who's poor in spirit, a person who's merciful, among other things, And so this week, we're considering what purpose that sort of person will have in the world. Jesus is speaking to his followers, and he gives them a clear vision of the purpose of following him in the world. So maybe you're here tonight, and uh, you're a Christian, but you're feeling a bit disillusioned with the whole thing. Uh, Maybe you're wondering, kind of, what's the point of being a Christian? Uh, Maybe it doesn't feel as good as it used to be uh, to be a Christian. You might be thinking like is this it like am i sure that i'm actually doing this whole christianity thing right Uh, or maybe you're here and you're not a christian and you're just unsure about this whole thing altogether Uh, you don't really even know what it would what it would even mean to be a christian and if that's you you might be asking the question what is following jesus all about and both of these are kind of questions of purpose and what's happening in this passage tonight is jesus is meeting us in that confusion and he's giving us clear purpose So as we look at this passage, we're gonna be asking this question, uh, what purpose do followers of Jesus serve in the world? What purpose do followers of Jesus serve in the world? It's kind of another way of asking the question, what are Christians for? What's the point of all this? And as we look at this passage, we're gonna see two answers. We're gonna see that Christians are a preserving presence. And second, we're gonna see Christians are an illuminating presence. So a preserving presence and an illuminating Presence. So first, Christians are a preserving presence. If you would look with me to verse 13, uh, Jesus begins this passage uh, on our purpose by saying, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. And so one thing I just want to like identify right from the get-go is that Jesus says, um, you are, not you could be or you might be or if you do this, then you will ultimately be. Now what this statement is, this is an indicative statement. This is Jesus saying to his followers, this is fundamentally who you are. And he says to his followers, you are the salt of the earth. What does that mean? Uh, I think it's a saying that we use commonly. We might say of someone like that guy's the salt of the earth. And generally it just means like that's, it's a good person, a noble person maybe someone who does stuff behind the scenes that really keeps things going for everyone else. That's what it means to be salt of the earth in our mind. Uh, But in Jesus' day, salt, uh, it wasn't used necessarily as like a flavoring, which is kind of how we tend to think about it. It was primarily used as a preservative. Um, So in Jesus' time, they didn't have refrigeration. So in order to preserve food, what they would do is they would rub a whole bunch of salt into it. And the salt would extract the moisture and then it would preserve the meat or the vegetables or whatever was rubbed on it. And so the idea was that unsalted meat would spoil quickly without refrigeration. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's likening his followers to this preserving presence of salt. He's saying in the same way that salt preserves meat, my followers preserve this world. But what is it that makes Christians a preserving presence? What about us is preserving? Uh, Jesus says, I think in the latter part of verse 13, he says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out. A couple things. Uh, So he says, but if salt has lost its taste, uh, what it says in the original language is, is literally this. But if salt becomes a moron, if salt becomes a moron, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything. See, what Jesus is saying here is that salt, it becomes useless when it loses its distinctive properties. When it loses its distinctiveness, when it can no longer preserve. Like, what's the point of salt? So what Jesus is saying is that Christians are a, they're a preserving presence precisely because of their contrast to the world around them. See, in Jesus' mind, what he's doing here is setting up his followers as a contrast community to the world that's surrounding. And so I I just want to consider what what might this look like to be a contrast community as a follower of Jesus? Actually, church history is kind of full of examples of uh, the church doing this well. Uh, It's also full of examples of the church doing this not so well. Uh, but one example of the church doing this well, uh, in the third century, the Roman Empire experienced a pandemic, uh, not unlike the one that we're going through today. Actually, it was a lot more severe, um, but it was one that just wouldn't go away. It ended up lasting for about 12 years. Uh, it was called the Plague of Cyprian. Um, this is because there was a Christian pastor at the time named Cyprian who described it a lot in his sermons. And so historians refer to it as the Plague of Cyprian. It's not because he caused it. Um, <laughs> But this plague, it was actually something like Ebola. So when people got this, like, it, it wasn't good. Like, rarely did someone come back from getting this plague. Um, historians said that there was a death toll of up to 5,000 people a day at times. And so you can imagine kind of in the ancient world, this plague is like wreaking havoc on everything. There's like the social fabric starts to deteriorate in a place like that. I mean, I think we've even seen this. Like, I don't know if you remember, like, early COVID. There were people amassing hand sanitizer and masks, and like, you just couldn't find this stuff anywhere. Like, the same thing was happening there. Uh, people were, if someone started to even look sick, they would just kick them out of their house. Or if there was a dead body of like a deceased loved one, they would just throw it out into the street. And this sort of thing just caused infections to grow and things to get worse and worse and worse. But in contrast to this was the response of the relatively young Christian church. They'd only been around for a couple hundred years at this time, and what they did was they went actively towards the sick people in this time, many of them uh, at the cost of their own life, and they were kind of the only people doing this at the time. Uh, There's a Roman emperor about like a hundred years after this who was a pagan. Uh, He did not like Christianity at all, but he said this about the Christians uh, who were caring for all these people. He says, when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by us, then I think the impious Galileans, which is how he referred to Christians, observed this fact and devoted themselves to caring for them. He says they supported not only their poor, but ours as well. And this was, I mean, it it had a radical effect. In fact, it's estimated that cities uh, with a significant Christian population during this plague had half the amount of deaths than other comparable cities. You see, in the face of death and decay, these early Christians were a preserving presence. They were a preserving presence. They were a contrast community. So that's a bit of an extreme example of what this looks like. So I think it kind of begs the question, what does it look like for us here to be a preserving presence on campus? I think it's important to, uh, to note when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he's not saying you individually primarily. He's saying, y'all are the salt of the earth. (laughs) It's second person plural. So this is something that primarily we do together as a community. So what does it look like for us as a community to be the salt of the earth, to be a preserving presence? I think, I mean, to me, as I'm trying to sum this up, I think it just means that we're supposed to be the type of people who look for the decay surrounding us and to run towards it in the name of Jesus to look for the decay surrounding us and to run towards it in the name of Jesus. Uh, what sort of decay do we see in a place like UNL? In a lot of ways, it's, I mean, it's a beautiful place to be, but there's so much uh, struggle with um, isolation, so much struggle with uh, polarization. It's almost as if you can't disagree with someone and still be friends in a lot of ways. Like what if in the face of that, uh, the church, the followers of Jesus, were a community of grace, a contrast community where everyone is welcome and where disagreeing with someone doesn't necessarily mean that there's decay in that relationship. Uh, the kind of like foodie mm-hmm. chef Anthony Bourdain, who passed away a couple years ago, um, went to a restaurant called Waffle House the first time. Has anyone heard of Waffle House? So it's like primarily across the southeast. It's It's a really crappy restaurant. I'm just gonna go ahead and be upfront about that. Like it is, it just is. But it's open 24 hours a day, it's really cheap, and usually you're gonna have a very great experience at it. So this highbrow chef, Anthony Bourdain, visits Waffle House. And this is what he had to say about it. He said, Waffle House is an irony-free zone where everything is beautiful and nothing hurts. Where everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, or degree of inebriation is welcomed. It's warm yellow glow, a beacon of hope and salvation, inviting the hungry, the lost, all across the South to come inside, a place of safety and nourishment. It never closes. It is always, always faithful, always there for you. Okay, so that's a funny description of a restaurant. What I want to say is like, that is actually an accurate description of what the church is supposed to be as a place of salt, as a place of preserving. Like, can you imagine what it would be like if if RUF would be a community like that on campus or if Christians in general would be a community like that on campus? Can you imagine the impact that would have? What about us as individuals? What does it mean to be a preserving presence? I think it means to just consider where God has placed you. If you're an upperclassman, I mean, what are you involved in? Where do you find yourself spending all your time? Or if you're an underclassman, what do you want to be involved in? I think you just need to ask the question, what sort of decay and deterioration do you see in your spheres? Where do you see it in your sorority? Where do you see it in your honors program? Where do you see it in your dorm? Where do you see it among your sweet mates? See, I think the call to be a preserving presence means that we will identify that decay and we're gonna smuggle some of the peace of Christ into it. And in so doing, we become a preserving presence amidst the decay. So Jesus calls his followers to be a preserving presence, but he also calls them to be an illuminating presence. We see this kind of in the second half of our passage here. If you would look with me to verse 14, Jesus says again of his followers, you are the light of the world. And as I said earlier, again, this is an indicative statement. This is not a horizon that Jesus is putting out there. This is Jesus telling his disciples, this is who you are right now by virtue of relationship with me. So in our day, kind of as in Jesus' day, light illuminates, it reveals what's hidden in darkness, Uh, it lights up our path. But I think unlike our day, in Jesus' day, light was a little bit harder to come by. Um, Some of you who are maybe from a little bit more rural parts of the world can understand this a little better, Uh, but there's such a thing as total darkness. And the people in Jesus' day would have been very familiar with what that felt like, complete and total darkness. And so when Jesus calls his followers a light in the world, calls them the light of the world, they would have had an intuitive understanding that this is a good thing that you don't hide. It's something that's valuable, that's necessary. And he then goes on to kind of unpack the metaphor a little more. He calls his disciples a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. A lamp which lights up a house. Uh, This is where we get that famous song, right? Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. See, Jesus intends for his people to be an illuminating presence. So I think we need to ask the question, what is it about us that is illuminating? What is it about being a Christian that is an illuminating presence? Uh, Jesus says in verse 16, says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven. Again, the point of this metaphor that Jesus is giving is to show that light is contrasted with darkness. You see what makes light light is the fact that it's different from darkness. Light is pointless when you hide it. When you show it, when when it brings about contrast, when it brings about difference, when it brings about distinctiveness. Again, Jesus is calling his people to be a contrast community. To be different from the world Around them, And in calling his disciples the light of the world, Jesus is echoing the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah said, I will make you a light to the nations, referring to the people of God. Uh, the church is supposed to be a group of people who kind of shows who God is. They're supposed to like transcribe God's character into the world, such that if you want a ha- like, good idea of who God is, of what God looks like, the best place that you can go is the church. When you walk into the church on Sunday morning, that's, that's where you're supposed to have the clearest picture of who God is. And I, I think that's, like a, that's a pretty idea, right? Like, that sounds great. But if we're honest with ourselves, is that what the church always feels like? When you walk into church, does it always feel like you're encountering the living God? Uh, If you're anything like me, I mean, when you think church, I I tend to think, especially recently, uh, of any number of uh, abuse scandals. Think of embezzlement, think of cover-ups, you think of racism. I think of the ways that the church has often chose power over sacrifice. The church has often chose influence over service. It's chosen politics over people but the church is supposed to be an illuminating presence. Like, What can possibly be illuminating about the church if all of those things are often true? Uh, So about eight years ago, when my wife Molly and I were dating, uh, which makes me feel old saying that, um, she came to visit me in my hometown of Moxville, North Carolina, which I don't think anyone will have ever heard of. Um, But judging by the fact that you've never heard of it, you can probably tell there's nothing to do in Moxville, North Carolina, except for go out to eat. Uh, So we went to one of the four restaurants in town, uh, went out to eat with my parents so they could get some time with me and Molly together. And it went well. It was a really fun time. It was good for my parents to get to know Molly. Uh, But something about my family is you've kind of got to be able to roll with the punches in my family. Like, we make lots of jokes, uh, which is probably why I am the way that I am. Um, But my family, it's like, you know, it's back and forth all the time. And so at one point in the dinner, uh, my dad had just kind of said something at my expense. Um, I actually don't even remember what it was that he said. It just kind of rolled off my back. I didn't really even think about it. And so Molly and I got in the car. I drove her back to where she was from and we were just kind of debriefing our time together and I got a phone call from my dad. Uh, And so I picked it up and uh, I could tell immediately from his tone that something was off. Um, But we, you know, kind of small talk for a second and he said this to me, he said, son." I can't stop thinking about what I said about you in front of Molly. That wasn't funny. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have put you down in front of your girlfriend. I'm so sorry. Can you forgive me? Okay, this happened like eight years ago, and it was a minor interaction, and it's like burned into my brain. Like, what is it that sticks out about that? See, what, that sticks out to me because that's not what I'm used to. I'm used to having interactions where someone says something hurtful and I don't really think about it. You just kind of bury it away and it stays down there in the dark. What my dad was doing was he was bringing it up into the light and he was owning it. What he was doing, the, the Christian term for it is repenting. He was owning that before me. Okay, what I want to say about this is there are lots of ways that followers of Jesus can be a light in the world. But I think one really, really important way for us at this moment right now Is that we can be a repentant people. We can be a people who own our wrongs. We can be a people who admit that we're not perfect. And I think we can do this as a community. Uh, Followers of Jesus should be the first people to admit our failure, we should be the first people uh, to acknowledge past injustices that we didn't do enough to confront. We should acknowledge our present obsessions with money, fame, and influence. You see, the church is an illuminating presence when we own our failure. Why? Well, not unlike how the moon reflects the sun, like we're not actually supposed to be a light in and of ourselves. We're a light when we reflect who God is. And when we own our failure, we allow people to see beyond us. We allow people to see that there actually is such a thing as a God of grace and mercy. A God who doesn't relate to us according to our sins. You see, when we, when we boldly own things that we've done wrong before people, people get a glimpse of who God is. We become a light to the nations. And I think the same is true as individuals. When we can be okay with ourselves in the midst of failure, we testify to the reality of a God who relates to us by grace and not by our works. When we can be okay with ourselves and our failures, we testify to the love of God who doesn't abandon us when we don't act lovely. You see, in owning our failure and being the sort of people who repent and being the sort of people who, if we said something that might've offended someone, we risk it. We go to them and we say, I'm so sorry for what I said. What we're doing there is we're creating an opportunity for that person to look through to us and see God, to see the beauty of the living God, the one who is the true light of the world. So let's think back to our original question here, right? It's a big big picture question. What purpose do followers of Jesus serve in the world? So Jesus kind of gives us these two images. We've seen that Christians are salt, we're a preserving presence in the world, and light, an illuminating presence in the world. Uh, And as I close, I just want to make something like abundantly clear about this passage. Uh, I've already hinted at this, but I just want to say this clearly. Being salt and light is not a to-do list. Being salt and light is not something that maybe you could do. Being salt and light, if you're a Christian, is fundamentally who you are. It's something that is given to you. You see, when you put your faith in Christ, when, which is you know a Christian way of saying, when you make Jesus the most central thing in your life, the Bible says that you are justified in Christ. And that's a legal term that just means that you are accepted before God as righteous. Not only is your sin pardoned, but you are seen as as a beautiful, perfect child of God. You receive an unshakable identity. See, when you place your faith of Jesus, what is true of him becomes true of you. See, the scriptures tell us that we're united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. So when God looks at us, he doesn't deal with us according to our sins, he deals with us according to the righteousness of Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, we see the ultimate preserving presence. Jesus is God himself who entered into a world of decay in order to create a people who preserve. And he did this through sacrificially giving his life on the cross, and when we see the links that Jesus went to be a preserving presence in our own lives, we can't help but image that out into the world. We can't help but be a preserving presence. And when we look at Jesus, we also see the ultimate, ultimate illuminating presence. Jesus is the light of the world who came down into darkness in order to call us children of light. You see, Jesus didn't count his privileged position with God as a thing to be kind of like hoarded and held onto. He saw it as something that he wanted to share with an open hand and invite people into. You see, he lived the perfect life. He died a sacrificial death, and he was raised. And the good news is that by his spirit, he applies that work to us such that we can become more and more illuminating presences in the world. So if you're a Christian, you are salt and light. You are preserving presence in this world. You are an illuminating presence in this world. But if that's not where you're at, I just want to invite you to just think about that. Think about what it would mean to be a preserving presence. Think about the decay that you see around you. Think about what it would mean to be a light. What about the darkness that you see around you? And I just want to ask you, don't you want to be a part of preserving and illuminating? Don't you want to be a part of of working for the good of this world? Jesus invites you to be. And if that's you, I I would love to talk to you more about that. I really would. So let's pray.